Happy New Year, a new year. Get quite excited at the start of a new year. It's a year full of potential, many dreams. What I'll often do at the beginning of a new year is I'll go down to the shops and I'll get a new planner. It's very exciting. I'm very sad like this. I'll go down, I'll get a planner and a new pen and I'll put down some dates and some goals and some stupid unrealistic expectations as to what I expect to achieve in the new year. You know, those New Year's resolutions. I will lose weight by walking three kilometers every day on my treadmill at home, and I can watch TV at the same time. I, I will not have junk food more than three times a week. Ha, ha, ha. It's an exciting time, a new year. And yet, with every new year, we know from our previous year's experience, and the many years before that, that there will be tough times as well. Every new year comes with tough times. There will be good days, happy days, and there will be days that bring us to our knees. We all know that from experience. We will face dark days. At times where we will face difficult trials and hardships, much pain, you know, I'm sure many of us here today are actually more familiar with the trials of life than I am at my age. Let me start by saying this morning, it's not my intention to offend you with what we're about to look at in God's Word and, and how I seek to teach it. Uh, what we're about to study is going to be really hard for some of us to take on board, particularly if you are struggling in a trial even at this time. But I do believe, I genuinely believe, that as we get a better grasp of God's purposes for us, according to his word, in how we are to see our trials as Christians, and how we are to respond to our trials as Christians, we will find hope and joy in the darkest of places, at the most painful of times. It will be of enormous benefit to us as his people. But if I accidentally touch a raw nerve this morning, I apologise. Now, the church to which James addressed this letter, well, they were familiar with trials. Notice what he calls them in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, or in the Greek, the diaspora. It's a phrase that was used of God's people in the Old Testament in Israel who had been scattered under God's judgment and were living in pagan nations. James is writing to a group of Christians in a similar situation. They have been scattered from their home due to the political upheavals of their time and they are surrounded by a world and a culture that does not know the God they worship, does not love the God they worship and does not agree with what they believe. You know, it's safe to say that they faced hard times, particularly as Christians. And James is ultimately concerned with how these men and women would respond to the ongoing trials they face in that situation. What would be their attitude in times of hardship as God's people? He starts in, in verse 2. This incredible sentence, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I'll say it again, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
sounds quite strange, doesn't it? Rejoice as you meet trials of various kinds. Maybe James has been under the the Mediterranean sun for a bit too long. You know, rejoicing is the last thing that most people have on their mind in the midst of a painful trial. But that is what James says. He, He says to Christians facing trials of various kinds, you have the ability to rejoice. And the rest of the passage, James 1 today, seeks to explain that statement. That might seem very strange to us. James is going to show us, for the Christian, that this response to trials, this response of joy, doesn't have to be strange at all. Uh, First, he gives us two reasons. Uh, The first one is in verses 3 and 4, and then the second one at the end in verse 12. And then in verses 5 to 8, we're going to see how we are to grow in the response of joy to trials, and then he's going to finish with an example. We'll go through it in that order. We're going to have the reasons for why we can have joy in trials, then the means to get joy, and then finally an example of it. So come back with me to verse 2 again. We'll start at point 1. Why can we rejoice as Christians when we face trials? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's important to notice here, James doesn't say, oh, rejoice and enjoy the trials you're enduring themselves. You know, you, you should enjoy your trials. You know, we're not to relish in pain and tribulations like a bunch of masochists. He's not saying that. James knows of all people that trials are painful. You know, we won't enjoy them. Instead, James says, rejoice when you meet trials, when they come into your life. Because he says, as they do, they will test you. Particularly, they will test your faith. So that progression in verse 3, when we come up against trials, they test us. They test our dependence and our trust in God who works in all things. James says, actually, something really good can come out of the testing of your faith as you respond appropriately. In the midst of suffering, something wonderful can come about. He calls it steadfastness. Verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces, what comes out of it? Steadfastness. That's what this testing produces. What does that mean? What is steadfastness? I want us to just imagine we're down at Port Klang and there is a huge tanker coming into the port, a massive oil tanker. Okay, We're talking tens of thousands of tons of weight, full of fuel, and it's coming in and it's about to dock at one of the massive jetties to unload its cargo. Now, the, 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 uh, well, the, the ship's crew and the captain, they'll do something very, very important when it gets to the jetty. They will drop anchor and put mooring ropes onto the jetty so that that ship doesn't just drift away. Imagine the chaos that would be caused that ship just drift away into the ocean. And once it's anchored, once it's moored to the jetty, it is considered steadfast. It's not budging. It's not moving. 
no matter what happens to it. You can throw all you want at it. The worst storms can beat against it. Even some idiot can get to the controls and try and make it work. It's still not going to budge. It is steadfast. Well, James means steadfastness in that sense. It's the ability for us to stand firm and rooted in the faith, no matter what is thrown at us. Uh, To persevere through whatever trial we are facing, rather than let it cripple us as a Christian. You know, like, like that ship anchored down, even in the midst of a storm, it's not going anywhere. But this is a process that takes time for us as Christians. It's an ongoing thing. We have to, James says, let steadfastness take its full effect. It's got to finish its work. And that only happens as we persevere in our trials. But why? Why is the development of steadfastness so important? Well, James says it's valuable because... Verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. You see, by persevering through trials in faith with joy, we gain a deeper and stronger faith. As we continue to trust God in the darkest of times, we become more and more mature Christians. Now, many of you know I'm a, I'm a big fan of the movies. You know, I'll get down to the cinema at least once a week. That's a New Year's resolution that's never going to change. And I especially like the big war films, you know, the, the ones that are on a massive, uh, massive scope. So you think movies like Gladiator or Braveheart or Troy or one of, I don't know, one of the more recent ones. Well, Andrew and Judy, they, they know I like these kind of films because uh, a few years ago for Christmas, they got me Kingdom of Heaven. Anyone seen that one? You've seen Kingdom of Heaven? It's a bit old now. but yeah. Kingdom of Heaven, all right? Orlando Bloom, uh, don't know why, but somehow he got the lead role in, in that film, Orlando Bloom. Uh, and he's cast, he starts out, before he goes and saves Jerusalem and all that, he starts out as a blacksmith of all things, in France. Okay? It's a bit of a sad story. He loses his wife and all those things. But you just see in a scene Orlando as a blacksmith. And you, you get to see a little bit of what did a blacksmith do in the 11th and 12th century in northern France. And what he's doing is he's building a sword. It's a really nice long sword. Really, uh, the kind of thing you really don't want to face. Uh, and how he does it is he takes a block of metal which will be the blade of this great long sword, and he puts it into a blazing furnace. I mean, glowing white, white, white hot. And he shoves it in, leaves it there for a good half an hour, takes it out again, and then he puts it onto an anvil, this massive metal block, and takes a massive hammer and starts to smash down on it really violently. I mean, he puts all of his strength into it, smashes down on this block of hot metal to form this sword. And then once he's done that, the whole process just starts again. Sword goes back into the blazing hot furnace, comes back out, smashed the bits, back in, comes out, you know... But after a little while, you're starting to feel a little bit sorry for this poor sword, as it were. Well, it's strange, but I, I, I did anyway. Sword goes into the fire, smashed, and it continues and continues. But do you know, as this process continues, the reason why he's doing it is because the sword, the metal, is becoming more and more durable. It's becoming a lot, lot stronger. Because you think, what's this sword going to be used for? It's going to be used in battle. It's not going to have a comfortable life. It's going to be smashed against other swords. 
So it needs to be strong. It needs to be able to withstand incredible forces. Well, it gets to the point where it's highly unlikely that anything will break this sword after Orlando's had a good go at it for a working day. And our faith as Christians, it's a bit like that sword. The trials that we face, they are harsh. They are painful. There's no doubting that. They are like a blazing hot furnace, a heavy hammer coming down on us. And yet the process, if we are wise, we will see it as This is valuable. This is actually valuable. Because by it, I am developing a perseverance in my faith. Just like the sword that every time it gets put in the furnace, every time it gets smashed a bit, it is getting stronger to the point where it can withstand whatever might seek to batter it. For us as Christians, to the point that as we stand firm in our trials and persevere through them and trust God in them, we become more and more able to withstand and to grow and mature in our dependence on him. We're going to face trials. No choice about that. Everybody does, particularly us as Christians. It's quite a, it's more common in church history if you look back for Christians to be persecuted. We're living in a quite strange time where there isn't a fierce persecution against us, though there are others in this country who face that. Of course, the alternative is we pack it all in. Under a harsh trial, we just turn away. You decide it's not worth enduring. But it's just terrible when I see people making that decision. We underestimate the value of faith. We fail to realise at those times, why is it worth suffering for? As we persevere in our trials, we are being prepared for something beyond words. Truly incredible. It's the second reason James gives us for why we can rejoice at the value of trials, though painful they are. Look in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It is the goal of the testing that we are facing. That once we have stood firm, once we've persevered through our trials to the end, we will receive that which is of infinite value which is incomparable to the pain that we suffer now. A gift that makes all those trials and pains look like nothing. It's the crown of life. It's eternal life under the blessing of God's rule, where there will be no more pain or sickness or death or mourning, where all those things will have passed away and we will enjoy God's presence forever. That's what's promised to those who do stand firm, who, who continue to trust in Christ and suffer for him, no matter what that might mean. As our faith is tested, we're being prepared for that kind of glorious future. So friends, when you meet a trial in 2013, and we all will, look forward. Keep the big picture in mind. Remember where we're heading Remember that your faith, which is so valuable, is leading to that crown of life. When the pain that you are enduring at that time will seem like nothing compared to the eternity that you have to look forward to in Christ. But also, remember what this testing is preparing you for. 
Rejoice in your trials because by persevering through them we will grow in maturity even in the meantime as well. We will become stronger in our faith. We can rejoice because our faith which is being strengthened is heading for the crown of life and we're getting better and better prepared for it in the moment as well. Now, James realises that for some of his readers this is going to be way too hard to take on board. I think for a lot of us here today, we're a little bit shocked at what I've said so far. I think, grief, how on earth could I ever have this kind of mindset? How am I going to start responding to my trials in this way in the coming year? James knows that's a problem for his own congregation. And I know it will be a struggle for us. So see what he says under our second point. How do we rejoice under trial, giving it, it is such an alien concept for so many of us? Have a look in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That's James's answer. If we're struggling to respond in faith and joy in the midst of our trials, we're to pray to God. Depend on him and ask him for wisdom. You know, wisdom is actually it's a central theme in this letter. Through it we're shown there are two types of wisdom in James. There is God's, uh, God's wisdom, which we learn when we feed on his word each day, and there is worldly, earthly wisdom. You know, it's all around us. It's in the cinemas. We read it in the newspapers. We hear it from our non-Christian friends. It's the kind of wisdom that is totally closed off from the wholeness of reality. It doesn't give us the big picture. It views life like a roller coaster of ups and downs constantly, and we're just along for the ride. No rhyme or reason whatsoever. There's no point to your suffering. There's no point to your trials. Just avoid them wherever you can. They're just bad news and nothing more. If we suffer, we suffer, and if we enjoy, well, we enjoy. Well, taking joy in trials, as far as the world is concerned, that's just stupidity. That's utter foolishness. And the danger for us as Christians is we can be influenced by that kind of wisdom. We just look at our trials and we see them just the the same way non-Christians do. James doesn't want that for the church. He wants us to understand that these trials are not random, unexplainable, useless events. That God does have a purpose in them, as painful as they are. He is loving, he is in complete control, and he is putting us through them for his own good reasons. Because they are valuable for our faith. So he says to his readers in verse 6, If any of you lack wisdom, ask God, ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James adds a serious warning as you're praying to God for wisdom to help you see trials the way he sees them and persevere in faith, he still attaches a warning as well. The one who asks for wisdom must not doubt as he asks. And if he does, then you shouldn't expect to receive anything in the way of a different mindset from the Lord. That's a bit scary. First read it. It was a bit scary for me when I first read it. It, it. Is James really saying that unless you work yourself up into uh, a state where you have ridded yourself of all doubt in your mind, you know this is true, you won't receive anything. You know, if that's the case, I think we should be alarmed, even as Christians. Don't we doubt sometimes? Don't we actually wonder to ourselves, well, is this something that God will really grant to me when we pray? 
Does James really mean this? That, that when we doubt, we shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord? You know, if that's the case, so many of my prayers will go totally unanswered. You know, thankfully, I don't think that's what James means here. I don't think he's just talking about any kind of doubt. We can work out who the doubter is by looking at the other word James uses to describe him. In verse 8, he describes him as a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. He uses this phrase again in chapter 4. Just flick over with me to James chapter 4. Come to verse 3. James 4 verse 3. We have this double-minded man here, and James gives us the motive that this man has in his prayers. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's what he says of the double-minded man. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Half of this guy is living for the world. So he's got one foot in the world camp and he's got one foot in the Christian camp. He likes the sound of Christian teaching, likes the sound of the way Christians think and act. He likes to hang out in the Christian social circles. But the truth is that his heart isn't really in it. He is double-minded, constantly unstable. He, James described him like a wave in the sea that is tossed to and fro. He's all over the place. He prays, he asks God for wisdom, but he doesn't ask with the right motivations. No, God gives us wisdom so that we can persevere in our trials and grow up in our maturity. But the double-minded man, he asks God for wisdom half-heartedly, because he still in reality belongs to the world. doesn't truly trust in Christ or know God at all. Chances are he's praying because he just wants to escape hardship no matter what. He can't see any value in them whatsoever. Lord, just just take this trial away. Take it away. Take it away. Take it away. And so when this man hears the wisdom of James and he says, you can rejoice when you face trials of various kinds, even the ones you can't avoid, he thinks, that's crazy. That's ludicrous. That's how godly wisdom appears to friends of the world. No, godly wisdom is those... It is understood by those who know God through Christ. But to enemies of the cross, it just appears foolishness. Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians that the teaching of the cross is absolute folly to those who are perishing. But it's where we see God's wisdom. Something truly wonderful coming out of the worst of trials. The most painful of times when Christ was crucified. But it's just pure foolishness to the worldly double-minded man. It just doesn't make sense. Well, James is giving us a severe warning here. Those who pray to God for worldly, selfish reasons, who still take no, do not take his wisdom and his words seriously, they shouldn't expect to receive anything from him. No wisdom, nothing. There's a warning for us as Christians as well, though. I wonder, are we guilty of asking God for wisdom for the wrong reasons? God's hope is that as we receive wisdom from him, we would be enduring and persevering through our trials. Perhaps as we pray, he will remove a particular trial from us. But often, trials are unavoidable. They are hardships that we will endure. And above all, God wants us to grow in our faith, in our maturity, 
Is that what we want when we pray to God for wisdom? That we would see the value of our trials and persevere through them in faith. That will only happen as we ask God humbly in accordance with his word. Well, finally, in verses 9 to 11, we see what joy looks like in the face of trials in the real world. Point three, we see this wisdom of joy in trials worked out. We're given, come back to James 1, we're given a lowly brother, uh, if you think a, a labourer, guy on a small wage, sometimes struggles to pay the, the rent, it's really just a hand-to-mouth existence every month, And then there's this rich man, this rich brother. And James is going to speak wisdom, the wisdom he's already explained, into the situations of both these, you know, very different individuals on the world stage. One, lowly existence, one, very wealthy. He says to the lowly brother, verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. In other words, rejoice in your high position. Even though you are struggling day by day, you can rejoice in your high position. Again, it just sounds like further foolishness, I imagine, to those of the world, to that double-minded man. But what James is saying here is actually incredibly wise. He's speaking to this lowly brother, having understood what really matters. You see, James isn't looking at him in his lowly, worldly status of struggling to pay the rent each month. That's how the world would see him. But James sees him as a fellow brother, one in the faith, trusting in Christ. So James knows that for this guy, what is in store for him is far greater than anything this world could offer anyway. He might be struggling to get by right now, but he can look forward to the day when he will receive the crown of life as he continues to trust in Christ. And not only that, but his hardships that he's enduring in the present are actually preparing him more and more for that day. As he perseveres, he is being strengthened, you know, like that sword from the furnace. The faith that will keep him steadfast, immovable, keep him trusting in Christ no matter what, so that he does receive the crown of life eventually. But then we have this second man, uh, the one who is wealthy. This is what James says to him in verse 10. And the rich in his humiliation. You boast in your humiliation. Again, sounds crazy to the world. I mean, this guy's sorted, isn't he? He's wealthy, he can afford whatever he wants, power, prestige, toys, nice holidays. You know, if you're rich, you've got it all. That's the message of the world. And James says, no, 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 no. no. You, you're wealthy, you boast in your humiliation. That's, what, that's the wise thing for you to do. Boast in your humiliation. His concern is that the rich, the wealthy man, doesn't delude himself into thinking he is somehow at the top as far as God is concerned. He is to remember his lowly status that is no different from the poorer brother. Because with all that money, you know, it could be tempting to think, yeah, I'm pretty superior. I eat better food. I live in a better house. I ride a faster camel. The lies of the world could cloud his judgment. So James says, no, you boast in your humiliation. Realize that all of your wealth that you can enjoy now, it's going to come to nothing at the end of the day, on the day of your death. 
just like the lowly brother, this rich man is a sinner and he needs to remember it. He is in as much need of God's mercy as the poorer, humbler brother. He's got to remember he's not autonomous, he's not self-dependent, which is the lie that so much money can often suggest. Rather, he is dependent on God. And he will not receive what is of most value, that crown of life, through any of his earthly riches, but only through depending on Christ, through faith. Trusting in Christ, death for him on the cross, no different from the poor brother. So that is his humiliation, that he is entirely dependent on Jesus. And his worldly status, well, that doesn't make any difference. You know, I remember last year going for uh, actually, a few years ago, going for lunch with Andrew and the dean of our time uh, before, Jason. And as we were parking upside, outside the restaurant, I think it was somewhere in uh, Cheras, uh, we noticed this commotion going on at the, just across the road. We've had to sit down and we get up again. There's a huge group of taxi drivers gathering around. We're wondering what's going on. So we make our way across, the three of us, and we see this man. And he's lying down on his back. He looks just asleep. This group of taxi drivers are standing around him. They look very scared. And Andrew, being a doctor by trade, he immediately goes to check. See, is this guy all right? And he wasn't. This guy had died. Didn't take us long to work that out. No pulse, no breath. He was actually cold. He had been dead for a while. Now this guy, he was probably in his late 30s. He he was wearing a rather nice business suit. He had a, a pretty nice watch clutching a decent leather briefcase. It it looked like he was just on his way to or coming back from a really important business meeting. He had no idea that his life was about to be taken from him. And yet in an instance, it was gone. He died. It, It echoes the wisdom of James here in verse 11. This is why he tells the rich man to boast in his humiliation. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. It flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. It's not to say it's any different for any of us. majority of us won't know the day we die. But for the rich man, if he bases his security and wealth, he's going to be in real trouble when that wealth has nothing to do for him when he passes away. What's this passage teaching us? What is this passage teaching us? Basically, when we face trials in the coming year, three words. Don't give up. Don't give up. When facing trials, stand firm in your faith. Continue to trust in Christ. When you struggle to rejoice in suffering, then pray. Ask God for his wisdom, because that alone will change our hearts and help us to think along his lines. Go back to his word. Go back to the cross. Pray that as you read his wisdom, that it would cause to take hold in our hearts, that we would be transformed and we would see life as God does. And look forward. Remember what is kept in store to those who persevere faithfully through their trials. The crown of life. No more pain or trials or death. Look forward and look back to the cross. Reflect on the example of Christ that he has left us to follow. His journey to glory was the hardest. 
You know, the trials that he endured were greater than anything that we could ever face in this life. He experienced hell in our place. He took the punishment for our sin. And having persevered, having remained obedient, having trusted in his Father's will, he was raised up and he was exalted to the highest place. And we can look forward to exaltation because of what Christ has done. I just want to finish by quoting a book uh, called The Heavenly Man. Some of you may have read it. It's uh, the story of a, a brother called Yun who uh, was Chinese and he suffered at the hands of the Chinese government. And this is the advice he gives to those who asked him, what can we pray to you? Think about the situation, the context. This guy is suffering under um, political, religious persecution, suffering greatly, and also members of his own family have been in prison several times for the sake of the gospel. And this is what he said when he was asked, what should we pray for you? He said, don't pray for the persecution to stop. We shouldn't pray for a lighter load to carry, but a stronger back to endure. Then the world will see that God is with us, empowering us to rejoice and live in a way that reflects his love and his power. Sure, brother Yun read James, and he was a man of God's wisdom. He understood the value of facing trials when they came upon him and unavoidable as they were. So let us have that same attitude as we enter into this new year on the good days and in the painful days as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom that you have mercifully and graciously made known to us now in Christ. It is so different from the wisdom of the world that we see every day that we can count it joy even as we face trials of various kinds seeing how they can be so useful to our faith that we will be growing in steadfastness that we will be anchored dependent on Christ and growing in our love and dependence on him that we'll be looking forward all the more to that crown of life for those who stand firm, where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Lord, this is tough wisdom. Please humble our hearts. Please help us to have your wisdom at heart and to work it out obediently for your glory in those times when we are going to be tested in this coming year. Would we be those who do persevere, who remain steadfast, and look forward to that joy we will enjoy in your presence. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.